Well, please open your Bibles to James 1, verses 13 to 15. Again, that's James 1, 13 to 15. The great auk is a flightless bird that bears a, a close resemblance to a penguin. It stands about two and a half feet tall and weighs around 10 pounds. In its heyday, it used to roam all across the North Atlantic, living almost its entire life on the water, except when it would uh, go to land on a few select uh, weeks of the year in order to breed. If you've never heard of the great auk before, there's good reason. It's because it's now extinct. It was last sighted in 1844 by a group of fishermen off the coast of Iceland, Uh, The fishermen immediately attacked the incredibly rare and valuable birds, and according to the Smithsonian, the the last great auk egg was inadvertently crushed in the scuffle by a fisherman's boot. Now, the reason why I'm telling you uh, about the great auk is because this bird can illustrate the lengths to which we as a species will often go in order to assign blame. You see, four years earlier... Before its extinction, in July of 1844, the Scottish island of St. Kilda was struck by a particularly fierce storm. St. Kilda is an incredibly remote and barren island some 110 miles west off the coast of Scotland. And it's this sort of isolation that not only led the people there to be relatively ignorant of the affairs and progress of the outside world, it also made them incredibly dependent on one another for survival. Well, while this people had endured many storms before, this particular storm managed to wipe out many of the island's sailors, their fishermen, and as the people searched for answers to explain their plight, one unsuspecting great auk made the rather unfortunate mistake of washing ashore. At one time, thousands of great auks had called the island of St. Kilda home. It was one of their major breeding grounds. However, by the 1840s, the bird had become so rare that this was likely the first great auk that the inhabitants of St. Kilda had ever seen. As this bird washed up on shore alive, alongside their dead, the people of the island became suspicious. They began to interpret the sudden appearance of this rather unusual-looking bird as a bad omen. And so they did what any other reasonable person would have done in their situation. They caught the bird in a net, and they took it to the local church to put it on trial for its suspected crimes. Uh, They took it to the church, charged it with witchcraft. As you can uh, probably imagine, birds are uh, terrible defense attorneys. And so, uh, to no one's surprise, the bird was found guilty. And satisfied, the people prayed the, de- the, prayed the delinquent, the criminal, uh, let's say the jailbird, okay, we'll, we'll go with that. They took him down to the shoreline where they found him, and they summarily stoned him to death. If you want to see the links that people will sometimes go to to assign blame, uh, I think you have a pretty good picture right there. If we need to, we'll go so far as to put a bird on trial and stone him to death as a witch if we think it will help explain for us why something bad has happened. And that's not just true when tragedy hits. Yes, when affliction strikes, we want answers, and so we'll go around assigning blame then in order to explain our suffering. But the fact is, we don't just do that when things happen to us. We'll do that when we happen to other things. 
when we're the tragedy in someone's life, we'll immediately go about trying to place the blame on others. You see this unfold nightly on the evening news. In fact, you saw it happen uh, in the past couple weeks here with the government shutdown. Legislators will refuse to pass legislation funding several key aspects of government. And, and then what do you see unfold? When Democrats go around saying it's the Republicans' fault. Republicans say it's the Democrats' fault. Each side was trying to force the other to take responsibility for the government shutdown. That's just what we do. If there's one thing we hate as a species, it's taking responsibility for our mistakes. If there's one thing we love to do, it's to assign blame to others. And it's no different when we sin. From the very first sinner who blamed his sin on his wife and on, when we sin, one of our very first responses typically is to assign blame to others. We don't say things like, you know, my boss said this to me today and I got angry, right? Think about this. We see this embedded even in the terminology we use in the way that we use language. We don't say, my boss said this and I got angry. What, what do we say? We say, my boss made me so mad today. You probably never think about that. These types of expressions common in our speech. But it's right there, implicit in the very language we use. I am not responsible for my sinful choices. Other people force me to do it. It's their fault. And sadly, we even do this with God. Again, this started with the first human being who was ever created. He didn't just blame his wife for his sin. He blamed God for giving him the wife who made him sin. And it's the same with us. We'll start experiencing some trial, and as we wrestle through the sinful desires that arise in that scenario, what do we start to do? We start to say, what are you doing, God? Why are you making this so hard on me? We place the blame for our struggle on the circumstances we're in. We blame the trial that God has sovereignly orchestrated, rather than placing the blame where the Scripture says it really should belong, and that's with us with our own sinful desires. This is the issue that we're currently exploring together in James 1, 13-15. In this passage, James' readers are experiencing trials, and as they struggle through the trials, they're asking themselves that question. They're saying, what are you doing, God? They're, they're wanting to blame God for their sin. James addresses this question by telling them you can't blame God for your sin. He says God's not the reason why the, why the trial is so hard, and he gives them two explanations as to why. He says they can't blame God first because God is perfectly righteous, so He's not going to tempt anyone. Verse 13, He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. Uh, we've seen that the idea here is not that God won't put a kind of external pressure on someone's life in order to try or test them, because He will do that. Rather, what James means when he says this is that God is not going to make or force someone to sin against their will. He's not going to, to actively change their desires to make sin appealing. Reason being, there's no evil in God. In fact, not only is there no evil in God, but He's repulsed by it. He finds absolutely no pleasure in it. So He's never going to be inclined to make a person sin because sin is entirely contrary to His nature. Second, James says that they can't blame God because sin comes from the inside of them. Verses 14 to 15. He says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. 
If you want to know why trials can be so hard, this is really where you have to start. You have to start with your own sin. Now, that's not to say that trials can't be difficult even when we do obey, because they can. But all the same, if you really stop to examine why it's so hard to obey in trials, I think most of the time you'll probably discover that the real reason isn't because the trial threatens a good desire, but because it threatens an evil one. And this is what James is getting at. He's saying the reason why you're finding it so hard to obey isn't because of the circumstances. It's because of your wickedness. The reason why you're tempted isn't because God is evil. It's because you are. You're tempted by evil because you are evil. Now, there's a sense in which that answer is sufficient to address the types of questions that we have in trials. It explains where blame should be assigned in trials, and that's really what we're struggling with when we start to say to God, what what are you doing here? Why are you making this so hard on me? What this answer doesn't explain, however, are all the subsequent questions that arise once we ponder its implications. Uh, For instance, if this is true, if God doesn't force us to sin against our will, then does that mean that God is not in control of the actions of evil men? Because if He's not, then how are we supposed to rejoice in trials? How can we say that trials are indeed for our benefit if they are not the direct result of a decision made by a perfectly good and righteous God? And if God is in control of the actions of sinful men, then how can James say that God is perfectly good? And how can he say that God doesn't force anyone to sin? It would seem he does. How can James say that I'm culpable for my sin? It would seem I'm not. These are all questions that spring up from this passage. And so last week I tried to address many of these questions. Uh, These aren't questions that James attempts to answer, and so we can't get our conclusions from James 1.13-15, but they're pertinent to the passage all the same. And so we've tried to dive into the Scripture's teaching on this very important and controversial subject. The conclusions we've come to so far are these. First, yes, God does ordain sin. The evidence in Scripture is simply too abundant to ignore. God will plan, order, decree sin. He does it with Pharaoh. He does it with the king of Assyria. He does it with Joseph's brothers. He does it with Jesus' killers. To quote Proverbs 16.4, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. So, does this mean that God is not perfectly good? No, it does not mean that God is not good. That was our second conclusion, that it is possible for God to be good while at the same time ordaining evil. We noted this for two reasons. First, we noted that it's possible for a good being to ordain evil so long as it's for a good purpose which cannot be achieved apart from evil. And that seems to be the answer the Scripture gives regarding why God would ordain evil. As Joseph tells his brothers who sold him into slavery, he says, As for you, you meant it... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God raises up Pharaoh for his glory. He raises up the king of Assyria to discipline Israel. He raises up Jesus' killers for the salvation of mankind. Again, God has a purpose for the wicked, and it's a good purpose, not an evil one. So God raises up the wicked in order to to achieve his perfect ends. And yet, God is never culpable for their wickedness because He directs their wickedness through secondary agents or causes. That's the second observation we made, that while God does ordain evil, somehow He's never the direct cause of it. 
He stands behind the action unevenly, directing the evil without ever being the author of it. That's the point that James is making here in verse 13. Yes, God will test people, but He's never going to serve as the direct creator of their evil desires. Now, I acknowledge that, that, that how precisely this dynamic works is a bit of a mystery. We don't understand all this. The Scripture never attempts to completely iron out the wrinkles in this concept. It simply affirms both that God ordains evil and that He is perfectly good. It tells us that God directs all things, and yet sin originates within ourselves. And then it leaves us to be humbled at the thought that God knows how that works, and we don't. And that's okay. We should never expect to fully comprehend God, and we should most especially expect His justice and His righteousness to, to confound us, given how much our thinking is tarnished by sin. Third, we concluded that we are responsible for our sin. Since God ordains sin, one could argue that we aren't held accountable for it since God is forcing us to do it, but that's not how the Scripture talks about our sin. Yes, God ordains sin, but only passively or indirectly. The ultimate reason why you and I sin is because we want to. We choose to do it. Again, that's James' point here in verses 13 to 15. The reason we sin is because we're lured and enticed by our own desires. God may ordain sin, but its origin is still in us. Meaning we're responsible for it, not God. It's our fault. And it's at this point that another set of questions arise. I want you to imagine for a moment that a, that a brother or sister comes to you and they're incredibly distressed. They have a sin that they've been wrestling with and as hard as they've tried to get rid of it, they can't. It's still there haunting them. No matter how hard they try to run from it, it shadows them. You've built a relationship of trust with this brother or sister. They know you love them, that you care for them. And so they come to you asking for help. What do you tell them? I'd imagine your first inclination is to remind them of the the forgiveness that they found in Christ. You take them back to the cross. You remind them that Jesus bore all the wrath for their sins there. They therefore have nothing to fear. God accepts them completely just as they are. You don't understand the answer. So you don't get it. I I know all that. I know Christ died for me. I know I'm accepted by God solely by grace through faith. I know I'm His child. That's not my problem. That's not my problem. I rejoice in my salvation. The problem, though, is I can't get rid of this sin. See, we have a tendency to want to view sin solely in legal terms. You know, sin offends God. It causes God to express wrath towards us. And so we need to be pardoned for our sin in order to escape God's wrath. The cross obviously does that. And so we we tend to think that if someone is struggling with sin, that's automatically what they need to hear. They need to be reminded of the fact that God has pardoned them, that He's no longer angry with them, that He loves them. In short, they need to know that they're not going to be punished for their sin. But the problem presented by sin doesn't have to do only with punishment. At least not for the Christian. You see, if we begin with the assumption that sin is not just a matter of misbehavior, but that it's an expression of idolatry, if if we understand that it isn't just an action, 
but that its origins begin inside of us, as James states here, then sin isn't just a legal problem. It's a relational one. Sin drives us away from God. And in that sense, ongoing sin continues to disrupt our fellowship with God even after we've been forgiven of it. And that's why this Christian is distressed. They're not worried about the security of their salvation or anything like that. No, they're distressed by the fact that their lives do not honor the God they love. They're distressed by the fact that their sin keeps disrupting their fellowship with God. They tell you, look, I know I'm forgiven. But this sin, it's hurting people. People that I love. I have these feelings I can't get rid of, and I hate them. And I want them gone. So why can't I get rid of them? Remember earlier in James, I explained that righteousness and wisdom go hand in hand. Obedience isn't just a duty. It's a blessing. It's good for us. And that's what they're frustrated by. They want to experience the blessing of obedience, but it just seems out of reach. I mean, haven't you ever experienced that? I know I have. I find myself wanting to obey God, not out of duty, per se, or obligation, but because I believe what He says. I trust His Word when it declares that that one day in the courts of God is better than a thousand elsewhere. And I want to experience that. But then I still find myself falling back into the same old sins like a dog returning to its vomit. Well, that's what your friend is going through. That's what they're struggling with. So what do you tell them? What counsel do you give to them? Think carefully now. What do you say? How do you explain their inability to grow in their sanctification in spite of their best efforts? Do you blame it on God? Tell them it's not their fault that growth is a matter of grace and that the reason they haven't grown is because God hasn't given them the grace to grow? That doesn't seem right. That seems to imply that we can't obey. That, in a sense, we're not ultimately responsible to repent or that God hasn't given us everything necessary to obey. And and the Bible never seems to imply that. But then again... If you say that it is in their power to repent and change, that they can make that decision, then doesn't that take grace out of it? And how do you explain what they're going through, this frustration they feel over their inability to obey? I mean, do you just write them off as an unbeliever? Do you say, gee, I guess it means you're not a Christian, because if you're a Christian, you'd be able to get over this. That certainly doesn't seem right either. I think we would all acknowledge that Christians are going to continue to battle with sin. So what do you say? I mean, when you stop to think about it, it's a real dilemma. Who is responsible for your lack of sanctification? Is it you? Is it within your power to obey? Again, pause before you answer that question. Are you always the reason for your lack of obedience? If you say yes, then I would ask you a follow-up question. I'd ask you, does that mean that perfect sanctification is possible this side of heaven? 
I mean, after all, if God has indeed given us everything we need to obey, such that we are always the reason for our disobedience, then that seems to imply that it's at least possible to obey perfectly all the time. I just have to choose to do it. But then again, if you say no, then that would seem to put God on the hook for our disobedience. I'm not holy because God won't let me be holy. That's what the Christian could say. And that doesn't, again, feel quite right either. So what do you say? What do you tell your friend? The decision you make there are going to have some very practical effects. If you tell your friend that they can change, when in fact they can't, then you're going to end up exasperating them. They're going to wear themselves out as they exert themselves to do something that the Scripture never tells them that they can accomplish. And they're going to end up frustrated. Their faith actually will be weakened. And then they'll despair because they think, they'll think the Scripture is false when that's not the case. It's your counsel that was false. But then on the other hand, if you tell them they can't change, when in fact they can then you're not only factoring into their disobedience by unnecessarily absolving them of their responsibility, but you're actually crushing their hope. That's how a lot of people, including Christians, handle sin today. They mean to show compassion by telling the individual that they're not to blame, that their actions are not their fault, and that all sounds well and good. The only problem is that that makes that individual a victim of their sin. They say, they say, you know, this is just who you are. You're always going to live with this. This is how you're always going to be. Again, that sounds compassionate and sympathetic and understanding, but it's also incredibly depressing. What a horrible thought to know that there's nothing I can do about these desires that are torturing me. I think that's the dilemma that really bothers us as we wrestle with the twin responsibilities of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Okay, so God is sovereign over sin. But but He's only responsible for it indirectly. The, The Scripture says I sin because I want to, so does that mean that I can improve my relationship with God or not? If I'm not holy, is that because God has ordained my lack of growth or is it because of my choices? Am I responsible for it? That's the concern, right? We, we see the sovereignty of God and the actions of sinful men, and it leads us to wonder, is there anything I can do to grow closer to God? Is that something that's under my control? Who, who is responsible for my lack of sanctification? In order to address this question, I want to do the same thing I did last week, and that's run through a series of questions and answers which I think will help resolve the tensions in this issue. And the first question that I want to ask is this. Number one, does the Scripture indicate that there's anything we can do to grow closer to God? Does the Scripture indicate that there's anything we can do to grow closer to God? To phrase the question another way, do the decisions we make in any way affect our relationship with God, either positively or negatively? And the answer to that question is yes, they absolutely do. They absolutely do. In fact, James is going to say later in this book, in James 4, verse 8, James 4, verse 8, he says, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. That would certainly seem to indicate that there are steps we can take 
to improve our fellowship with God. It would even seem to place the responsibility on us to initiate that fellowship at least to some degree. We are to draw near to God, and then God draws near to us in return. And it's not just James that says this. Hebrews 11, verse 6, says that it's impossible to please God without believing, number one, that God exists. Essentially, a person has to believe that God is true. By extension, I think you could say that they have to believe that His Word is true. Anyways, they have to believe that He exists. And number two, that He rewards those who seek Him. In other words, it's not just the Scriptures... It's not just that the Scriptures say that God does respond to our attempts to obedience. It actually even goes so far as to say that unless you believe that, you cannot be pleasing to God. It says that obedience is built on that concept, that God rewards those who seek Him. Now, I would point out that this does not nullify the concept of grace. If you're paying attention here, in each of these passages, there's this response component where we act and then God responds. We draw near to God and in return He draws near to us. We seek after God and in turn He rewards us. So it's not as if our obedience alone is enough to dictate that relationship. We must have God responding to our actions and I think that's where we see room for grace in these verses. The reason why we end up close to God, for instance, in James 4, 8, is probably less because we draw near to God and more due to the fact that He draws near to us, right? Same with Hebrews eleven six. We may seek after God, but, but by that He's not obligated to reward us. It's something He freely chooses to do as a response to those who seek Him. So I don't think we can say that grace is eliminated by this concept. The idea, rather, is that God has built into our relationship a natural sort of give and take, where as we seek Him, He promises to be gracious to us. So you pray, for instance, and God answers. Now, He doesn't answer because He's obligated to, simply because we prayed. He answers because He chooses to of His own free will, and yet He has ordained that prayer is one of the means by which we can seek His grace. We ask Him for it. God has established these means by which we can seek His grace, and the Scriptures show us that they are not only channels through which we can draw near to God, but to some degree, you can even say that they are channels through which we must draw near to God. What I mean is that God has established prayer, for instance, as a way of seeking His favor. And so when we pray, we expect that we will receive His grace in response. And not only that, but we should also expect that when we do not pray, we will not receive His grace or favor. Again, James is going to illustrate this point in chapter 4 when he tells his readers in verse 2, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. He conditions our receiving upon our asking. In other words, it's not that God will give us what we need or desire, independent of our asking, not always. No, He requires us to ask. You see, there's this assumption out there that belief in the sovereignty of God over all things inevitably leads to a kind of fatalism whereby the Christian stops taking the very practical steps that God has established to achieve His purposes. Listen, that only happens if the Christian ignores those Scripture passages which teach us very plainly that our actions, our choices, do have an effect. God tells Moses He's going to destroy the people of Israel. Moses prays, and God relents in Numbers 14. 
Isaiah tells Hezekiah he's going to die in 2 Kings 20. Hezekiah prays to God, and God tells Isaiah to go back and tell Hezekiah he's been given 15 more years. The implications of passages like these is that God clearly wants us to understand that things like prayer do affect our circumstances, and not just on a physical level, but on a spiritual one as well. So if you want to be holy, then you need to pray and ask God for grace, because God has told us in His Word, you do not have because you do not ask. You shouldn't expect to be holy without it. If you want someone to know Christ, then you need to go and share the gospel with them. Because as Paul says in Romans 10.14, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Is it possible that God will act in our lives or in the lives of others without prayer? Will He do that? Sure, it's possible. He can do that. He can act in our lives and the lives of others without prayer. I would assume He does that from time to time. Often. In the same way, is it, is it possible for God to save someone without a preacher going to them and sharing the gospel with them? Again, yes, He could certainly do that. That's not to say that He would do so entirely without a human instrument, but He can just as well draw someone to the preacher as He can send the preacher to them. But all the same, we are never encouraged, never encouraged to presume on that kind of intervention. And we are most definitely told that our going and doing the things that God has promised to bless will lead to God responding and blessing our efforts. I think you see this all the time, very practically. I mean, who ends up seeing more people turn to Christ? Is it the one who sits on their hands and waits for God to send someone to them to share the gospel with? Or is it the one who actively goes and finds people to share Christ with? It's not, is it not the latter of these two, right? It's the one who goes. Does that nullify the grace of God? Does that remove God's sovereignty from the act of salvation? Absolutely not. The difference, rather, is that God has told us, I respond to those who go and preach. It is as we draw near to God by engaging in the act of evangelism, for instance, that He in return draws near to us, draws near to us by blessing those efforts. The Christian fatalist is not only incredibly flawed in their theology, but they're incredibly inconsistent. For example, you never find the same person who says... Well, we don't really need to evangelize because God will save whoever He will. You don't find them choosing not to eat on the same basis. They don't say to themselves, you know what, I'm not going to work today. Because what's the point? If God wants me to have money, He'll give it to me. I guess I'm not going to go see the doctor to have this broken arm treated. After all, if God wants me to be well, He'll heal me. No, they understand intuitively that God has established means for their physical health. Could he sustain them without food? Absolutely. Right? For man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Yes, he could. He could sustain them without food. Could he miraculously heal their broken arm? Yeah. Jesus healed the blind. He made the lame to walk. So yeah, it's completely within God's prerogative to do that. But all the same, he probably won't. If you don't eat, you're probably going to die. If you don't get to the doctor, your arm is probably going to remain broken. And the reason is because God has established means for your physical health. 
And it's no different with your spiritual health. Can you grow apart from prayer? Sure, absolutely. But you shouldn't expect it. Can your neighbor come to know God apart from your going to them and sharing the gospel with them? Absolutely. But they probably won't. And the reason is because just as God has established means for our physical health, so also He has established means for our spiritual health. It would seem, seem, and I emphasize the word seem here because I don't know I can necessarily take you to chapter and verse to definitively prove this point to you. I want to put that disclaimer out there up front. But it would seem that since God exists in Trinity, since He is a person, or three persons to be precise, who exist in perfect relationship with one another, He has chosen to reveal Himself personally. What I mean is that God is not simply an idea. He's not a concept to be studied. Fundamental to His being is the concept of personhood and relationship. And so if His purpose in creating is to reveal His glory to His creatures, particularly mankind, which many seem to agree it is, then it won't do for him to merely tell us about himself. No, he means to have relationship with us. And that requires a kind of back and forth between us and God, a give and take. Just like you can learn about someone by reading about them in a book or in a newspaper or something like that, but you don't really know them until you start exchanging some form of communication with them, so it is with God. He wishes to reveal Himself to us, and to do that adequately, adequately, that requires that He have relationship with us, and that requires a kind of exchange to take place. If that's true then it makes sense why God would choose to accomplish His purposes through means. Yes, He could proclaim the gospel apart from human instruments. The problem is that that would undermine what He's attempting to do through those instruments, which is reveal Himself to them, to the instruments, by virtue of their relationship with Him. So God does not save apart from human instruments sharing the gospel because it's as these instruments are forced to exercise faith in their proclamation and draw near to God in their obedience, and as God then responds to their faithfulness by drawing near to them in return, it is then that these instruments not only learn about the faithfulness and wisdom and goodness of God, but they experience it. They see it. They taste it. This is what a purely legal understanding of sin and its effects seems to miss. When the problem of sin is reduced to merely legal terms, then the gospel ends up becoming more about an escape from punishment than it is about reconciliation to God. And God, in turn, ends up becoming more of an abstract subject to be studied rather than a person to be engaged with on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis. But regardless of whether or not that's why God has established uh, to uh, why God has established to accomplish His purposes through means, the point is still the same. The Bible teaches that God uses means to accomplish His purpose, including spiritual growth. And so, yes, your decisions can and do affect your relationship with God, both po- both positively and negatively. If you pray or read your Bible or pursue whatever other means God has established for spiritual growth, your relationship with God can improve. And by the same measure, to the degree that you do not do these things, your relationship with God can suffer. 
Let's move on now to our second question. And as much as I want to close our discussion of James 1, 13 to 15 today, I think we're only going to have time left to answer this question. And then we're going to have to come back to the rest of the discussion next week. We've established that the Scriptures say we can take steps to improve our relationship with God. So now question number two, can we always obey God? Or to state it another way, is it always possible to obey God? And I'd imagine you might be tempted to change your answer there depending on how I phrase that question. If I say, can you always obey God? You're probably inclined to say, no, of course not. That implies that we can be perfect to always obey God and we can't be perfect. But what I really mean to say is, is it always possible to obey God? And then you're probably inclined to say, yes, it is always possible to obey God because we're not comfortable saying that God commands us to do things that we can't do. This may lead you to think that the appropriate answer is really just a matter of phrasing, but I actually think the tendency to flip-flop from one question to another really captures the tension that we encounter as we ponder our ability and responsibility to obey God's commands. On one hand, we recognize that we have the responsibility to obey God's commands, but on the other, we, we tend to question whether we have the ability to do it. So forget about responsibility for a minute. I think that's less of a question. Clearly, we have the responsibility to obey God's commands. What the sovereignty of God brings into question, what James 1, 13-15 addresses, is whether or not we have the ability to obey. So do you? There are a couple different ways that you can approach the answer to this question. We could talk, for instance, about this same external influence versus internal desire dynamic that we encountered as we discussed the issue of temptation. And and how we approach that dynamic will be altered by whether we're talking about believers or unbelievers. In other words, what we've already seen in James is that there are sinful desires that dwell within us which make us inclined against obedience to God. What we discover is that we survey the Scriptures that apart from the intervention of God, we are not inclined to obey ever. Apart from the intervention of God, we are not inclined to obey ever. Romans 3, 10-12, for instance, we have this for our call to worship. It says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I mean, it doesn't get much clearer than that, right? No one does good, not even one. In fact, note the progression here. Paul says, no one understands. That means no one begins with a sound comprehension of God. They begin in the deficit, so to speak. Not only does no one understand, Paul says that no one seeks for God. So not only are they ignorant of God, but they aren't even looking for Him. They're not even trying to understand Him. Even further, Paul says, all have turned aside. The idea is they're actively going in the opposite direction of God. To phrase it another way, they're not just ignorant of God, they're actively suppressing the truth of God in their unrighteousness. That's pretty damning. Paul doesn't seem to have any confidence in man's ability to obey God. A number of years back, I visited uh, Ronald Reagan's tomb. And on his grave, there's a quote by Reagan. And in the beginning of the quote, Reagan says, I know in my heart that man is good. Paul basically says the opposite of that. And he doesn't just say that in Romans 3, he says it in Romans 8, in 1 Corinthians 2, Ephesians 2. It's a consistent part of his theology. As it is in the rest of the Scripture. 
Now take Genesis 6, for instance. In Genesis 6, God determines to flood the earth. Genesis 6, 5 to 6 explains why. It says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him to His heart. Again, that's not a very optimistic outlook. Only evil continually. Well, what's interesting is that after God nearly wipes out the entire human race, all except for one man and his family, He determines not to flood the entire earth again. And it's interesting why He doesn't do it. Noah offers a sacrifice to God, and as he takes the, in the aroma of the sacrifice, God declares, this is why he says he's not going to destroy the earth again with a flood. He says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Listen here. Why? For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. In other words, nothing's changed. It wasn't as if the flood fixed the problem. No, the only reason why God determines not to solve the problem of sin with worldwide destruction is because it wouldn't work. It would only end in the utter annihilation of mankind. None of us would survive because none of us are good, not even one. That is the Bible's depiction of man's heart. We desire only evil continually. We are evil from our youth. So no, natural man is not inclined to obey God's word internally. He does not desire to be obedient to God, not ever. And I know that that sounds harsh because we look around and we see unbelievers who we would consider to be uh, decent people and who do morally good acts. They'll give to the poor, they'll nourish and care for their children. Some will even sacrifice their life, right, to save the lives of others. Unbelievers do that. But you have to understand that if the command to love your neighbor is only an extension of the most basic command of the law, which is to love God, then none of those acts are truly good because until a person turns to Christ, none of those acts are performed as an expression of a person's love for God, not the true God. So I'll say it one more time. No one will ever do even one good deed before they turn to faith in Christ because apart from Christ, the Bible says that they are always inclined to do evil. That's how they're conditioned internally. And in that sense, you could say that the, uh, that the unbeliever is unable to obey God. However, this is not because the Bible or, or, this is not because God in any way constrains their obedience externally. Now again, I understand that there may be moments where a person is made physically unable to obey the commands of God or something like that, but that's not what I'm referring to when I speak of external constraint. Rather, what I mean is that God in no way inhibits man's obedience. There are not external forces that God applies to directly shape the internal inclinations of a man's heart. Again, James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. When man sins, he sins of his own accord. No one forces his hand. And in this sense, the option to obey is always there. Man is always free to choose to do it. He never will choose to do it, because his heart is hopelessly bent to reject God. But theoretically, at least, he could. The commands of God are not impossible to obey. It's not like God is commanding mankind to grow wings and fly to the moon or something like that, right? They're all things that man is more or less able to do and therefore free to do. 
Consider what Moses says to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 to 14. In Deuteronomy 30, Moses is is reconstituting the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai. And as he does this, he tells the people, verses 11 to 14, he says, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. He says, It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Think about that. Moses says that obedience to the law is attainable. I would imagine that that might make you a little skittish, right? If you hold to a reform system of, of thinking, a reform theology. But that's what Moses says. He says they can do it. So what's he mean there? I'll tell you what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that they'll be inclined to obey it. And I say that because not ten verses earlier, he's telling Israel that they're going to disobey the law. And after they disobey, God will circumcise their hearts so that they will obey. So he's not saying that they're going to be inclined to obey it. So what's he mean here? It's there in the verse. He says the command is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. The idea is that it's within reach. God has not only given them his law, but the law involves very reasonable expectations. And in this sense, they can obey, even though he knows they won't. Now, what's notable is that Moses says this to a people whose hearts have not been circumcised, meaning he says this to unbelievers. And so unbelievers can obey God in the sense that there's nothing externally preventing them from doing so. They are able in that sense, but because of the condition of their heart, they're unwilling. If you want to think of it this way, externally they're free to obey God. But internally, they're bound to obey sin. Now, I said this dynamic changes from believer uh, to the unbeliever. What, what changes about that? Well, it's not the external situation. If unbelievers are not constrained externally, then we'd have to assume that neither are believers. The same God who refuses to tempt the unbeliever will also refuse to tempt the believer because his character is the same in both instances. And so what changes? It's the internal dynamic. When the sinner turns to Christ, they do so by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's the one, the Holy Spirit, who takes the sin-hardened rebel running from God and transforms their desires so that they turn around and begin to run to God. And And as he does this, he changes the Christian internally so that they do want to obey God. That's the sort of person that James is dealing with here in James 1. There's someone who wants to obey God, so much so, actually, that they feel like they're being made to disobey against their will. That's what your hypothetical friend is wrestling with, is they open up their heart to you and tell you how much they wish they could be free of their sin, and not because they have to, but because they want to. This is the work of the Spirit, who Paul says, Romans 8.13, puts to death the deeds of the body. In other words, the believer is free to obey God, not only externally, but internally. Whereas the unbeliever is bound to disobey because of their sinful desires, the same cannot be said of the believer. It's as Paul says in Romans 6, the believer was once a slave to sin. 
But they have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. Again, this occurs, Romans 8, 2, by the law of the Spirit of life who has, quote, set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So if you're a believer, you're no longer bound to sin. At one time you were. You ran from God like everyone else. The intent of your heart was only evil continually. But now because of the Spirit's work in your life, your desires have been transformed and you've been freed internally from the power of sin in order to serve the living and true God. And that means that, yes, you are, in a sense, able to obey. It is possible for you to obey. And not just some of the time, but all of the time. There's nothing that's holding you back. Everything you need to become holy is out there and accessible for you to use. And I'm not just saying that because I think that's the way it should be. I'm saying that because that's what the Scripture actually says. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Do you hear that? God will allow you to be tempted, He says, but never beyond your ability. There's always a way of escape. There's always some way you can obey. Peter echoes the same thought in 2 Peter 1.3 when he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. He says, God has given us not some things, some of the things that pertain to life and godliness. Not most of the things, even. No, he says all things. God's given us everything. Everything we need to be holy has been given us in Christ, Peter says. So once again, you can't blame your sin on God. You can't say, it's His fault, I'm like this. No, the only person you have to blame for your sin is yourself. And on that note, I'm going to conclude our little Q&A this morning. Now, I know that I haven't really said anything too special or profound here today. I mean, when you stop to think about it, I've spent approximately the, you know, around 45, 50 minutes talking and our conclusions have been Yes, you can make decisions that allow you to grow closer to God. And yes, you can obey God's commands. And that probably seems pretty elementary, right? You might even get a little frustrated. Did we really just spend close to an hour establishing the fact that my actions have a real effect and that I can't obey God? I mean, that's kind of a waste of time, don't you think? Uh, Who doesn't know that? Everybody knows that. But I'll tell you why I've done it. I've done it this way because, number one, we're building to something here. Next week, I'm finally going to get around to how God's sovereignty affects our sanctification. And I think there may be some eye-opening conclusions made there. In order to arrive at those conclusions, we've had to lay a foundation with what we've discussed over the past couple weeks. So I think perhaps that moment is coming when you will walk away with some fresh insights regarding how divine sovereignty and human responsibility affects the kinds of things you do in your sanctification. It's just taken us some time to get there. And then number two... Second reason why I've done this is because as elementary as today's concepts sound, I'd venture we probably need to hear it. I don't know if you've noticed, uh, but this is the third week in a row where I've told you in different ways essentially the same thing. This is the third week in a row where I've told you you're responsible for your sin. 
Next week, I'm, I'm going to stress the sovereignty of God more. So that's, that's three weeks stressing our responsibility for our actions and one week stressing God's sovereignty. And honestly, I think that's probably about the right mix. Because I think if our church is going to be prone to fall off of one side of the horse and this tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility, it's probably going to be on the side that tends to stress divine sovereignty. To be completely blunt... I'd venture that we're the type to do exactly what James readers are doing here. And say, look, you know, I'd like to be more holy, but there just isn't anything I can do about it, okay? I'll become more holy when God decides to get around to it. Now, we may not ever verbalize our thoughts exactly like that, but I would bet if you examine yourself, you might find yourself rationalizing some of your sinful decisions that way. For example, are there things you know you should do but what you're not doing right now because you don't feel like it. And so you're waiting for God to come and change your heart so that you'll finally get around to doing it. Think about it. If you're hesitating to obey because your heart isn't engaged in the obedience and you think that's necessary before you can obey, and so you're just waiting on your heart to change before you get around to doing it, that's you. I hate to break this to you, but you're kind of blaming your disobedience on God there. That is, unless you think that you can change your own heart. What you're saying is, it's not really my fault. It's not within my power to obey. God has to come and give it to me. Guess what, guys? He already has. He already has. Yes, there was a time when you were bound to sin, but that's not true of you anymore. God has made you spiritually alive by the Holy Spirit, and now you can choose to obey. It's already within your power. You can't turn and say, if God only gave me the ability to obey, then I would do it. No, He's already given you that ability when you believed in Christ. Again, Peter tells us we've received everything pertaining to life and godliness. So once again, if you're not pursuing Christ, the only person you have to blame for that is yourself. If you reject God's counsel, that's your, the, that's your decision. You're the one to blame for it. Now, I realize that that question... Or that, that that conclusion probably raises another question, which is, so why don't I obey? Right? That's the question your friend is still struggling with as they sit across the table. So you've explained to them that they can change. What they want to know is, now, they want to know, so then how come I'm not changing? You know, I, I feel like I am pursuing God, but nothing's happening. What's the deal with that? And that's the question I want to tackle next week. Next week we'll address why it is we never will be perfect in spite of the fact that the Scripture tells us it is possible for the Christian to obey. And when we get to that, I think we're going to discover some very insightful and humbling realities about the sovereignty of God in our sanctification. But what I want you to understand right now, at least for today, is that God has given you the ability to draw near to Him. And whether or not you choose to exercise that ability is going to have a very real effect on the world around you. And in case I'm not being very clear here, let me state the matter plainly. Could your relationship with God be stronger today than what it is? And is it not stronger because of decisions that you have made in which you could have chosen to do otherwise? Yes. And whose fault is that? It's yours. And there's nothing in that statement that undermines God's sovereignty and your sanctification. 
I'll try to explain how that works next week, but for now I want to make sure you really understand that the Scripture in no way encourages you to look at your lack of holiness and simply declare, que sera, sera, right? Whatever will be, will be. Scripture never encourages that. So do you want to grow in Christ? Then pray. Because that's one of the means that God has established for your spiritual growth. And if you do not pray, then you shouldn't expect to grow. Not because God cannot make you grow apart from prayer, but because such growth would actually undermine the work that God means to do in you, which is to teach you, to make you realize cognitively in your own brain, from your own experience, what it is like to exercise faith and then see God prove Himself faithful to His Word. You want those around you to come to know Christ. Then share the Gospel with them. Because that's the means that God has established for salvation. Yes, He can save apart from your involvement, but He likely won't. And the reason, once again, is He's not only saving people from His wrath, He's reconciling to themselves, and that includes you. And part of that means teaching you to exercise faith so that you can grow as you witness His faithfulness in response. Again, I know that doesn't answer this question about the struggle we have with our desires, and I'll try to resolve that next week, but just understand that you can do something to improve your relationship with God. And, and just so you know, that's not meant to be a burden when I say that. I'm not meaning to guilt trip you here. I'm meaning that as an encouragement. You understand there's hope here. Do you want to grow closer in your relationship with God? Guess what? You can start to make that change today. You don't have to just sit back passively and wait. You're not a a mere victim of your sinful desires. No, Christ has already set you free from your bondage to the flesh, so you can change. And it can start now. What does that look like? And what role does God play in that change? That's what we'll explore in greater depth together next week. In the meantime, let's close with prayer. Let's pray.